0: Imagine you're sailing on a big boat through the clear waters of the Pacific Ocean, hundreds of miles at sea. And you notice a plastic bottle floating by that says Pepsi, and then another with a Coca-Cola logo. And then you look around and see that you're surrounded by plastic. Plastic bags, plastic knives and forks, plastic masks, bottle caps, styrofoam cups, plastic milk cartons, plastic juice containers, and the list goes on. Soon you're mired in a deep sea of plastic garbage, as big as eight million square miles. Eight million square miles. This is where the plastic you throw away eventually ends up. This is a problem we're leaving to the next generation. And this is Green Street.
1: Hello again and welcome to Green Street, the environmental health show. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, authors, journalists, engineers, public health officials, and others, all here on Green Street to help you understand a bit more of what is really happening, how it affects you and your family, and what you can do to protect yourself in this increasingly toxic world. If you thought the government was going to protect you from harm, take steps to see that toxic chemicals are taken off the market, or that industries that are polluting our world or contributing to climate change are punished or at least regulated, think again. Our federal agencies have been hobbled by constant budget cuts and the relentless efforts of some politicians to neuter their power and stock their leadership with individuals who demonstrate loyalty to the very industries they're supposed to regulate. That leaves all of us and each of us on our own when it comes to keeping ourselves and our family safe and protecting our own environment. We will only be helped by the government when the people lead the way by their own behavior and vote with their pocketbooks. And that will only happen when strong individuals stand up and say, enough. Today on Green Street, we are delighted to have with us one of those strong individuals, a remarkable young woman who is doing what she can to set an example for us all and to lead the new generation into patterns of behavior that may just have a chance to save the world. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street, but first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What's new in the environmental world this week?
0: I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's really important to keep reporting on PFAS. Uh, This is this class of chemicals that is really wreaking havoc on our bodies and on the environment. So this first article is written by David Bond, published in The Guardian, and the title is, Are We Being Kept Safe from Forever Chemicals Injected into Fracking Sites? A bombshell expose revealed that oil and gas firms are injecting PFAS chemicals into fracking sites threatening groundwater. Not willing to rest their laurels on the theft of the future, the fossil fuel industry is now salting the earth with forever chemicals. In a bombshell exposé from Physicians for Social Responsibility and the New York Times last week, it was revealed that per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, were readily used at fracking sites across the U.S. PFAS never break down a disconcerting fact that has led many to call them forever chemicals. Such durability comes with surprising mobility as these chemicals have proven biological and geographic borders with ease. Oh, and they are toxic. None of these worrisome properties prove sufficient to dissuade the fossil fuel industry from injecting PFAS into at least 1,200 fracking wells in the U.S., including in states where wastewater from oil and gas operations is routinely sprayed on roads and farms. This revelation comes days after the release of a video of fossil fuel executives bragging about just how easy it has been to sabotage legislation aimed at addressing climate change and petrochemical pollution, including PFAS. They're called forever chemicals, one ExxonMobil executive said, which basically means that these chemicals never, never deteriorate. While most scientists agree that such toxic immortality warrants sensible restrictions on PFAS use, ExxonMobil disagrees. According to the videos, company executives launched a stealth campaign to undercut the scientific consensus and surging momentum to regulate PFAS. ExxonMobil's preferred strategy of obstruction commission another government study. In the meantime, 130 oil and gas companies, including ExxonMobil, have been dumping forever chemicals into fracking sites in at least six different states. The use of PFOS in fracking. Quote, brings together two planetary emergencies, said Barbara Gottlieb of Physicians for Social Responsibility, contamination and climate. As climate change tips so much of the United States into a parched drought with inescapable heat waves, what water remains is increasingly poisoned by PFAS. By the EPA's own account, fracking wells are far from a closed system, a fact viewers of the flammable tap water scene in Gasland will be familiar with. A 2016 report from the EPA on the hydraulic fracturing water cycle provided extensive documentation of alarming instances where fracking fluids leaked into groundwater. More than 8 million Americans get their drinking water from underground sources within one mile of a fracking well. One measuring cup of PFOA could contaminate almost 8 billion gallons of water. According to documents released this week, the EPA was fully aware of the ludicrous risks of introducing PFAS to fracking when it authorized their use. Agency scientists voiced strong concerns that PFAS would probably contaminate the land around fracking sites through leaks, post-drilling uses, and even flaring as PFAS chemicals cannot be destroyed by fire. Senior leadership at Obama's EPA overrode those concerns and the precautions scientists recommended, like PFAS monitoring around fracking sites. At EPA headquarters in D.C., safeguarding the reckless profits of oil and gas companies took precedence over safeguarding the health of vulnerable citizens. As has been well documented, poor neighborhoods and communities of color bear an outsized environmental burden from fracking. It's well past time for our elected leaders to cut through this nonsense and hold those who profited from PFAS pollution accountable. Along with passing strong prohibitions on PFAS, Congress should also require oil and gas companies to conduct extensive groundwater testing at every fracking site suspected of using PFAS chemicals.
1: Yeah, which is all fine and good, except it's in the environment and it never goes away. That's Right right i mean yeah the,
0: i mean and i have done extensive research on how to get pfas out of our water we have groundwater right so and we have pfas in it not from fracking wells but it's yeah. the same chemical we actually have it from firefighters foam you know and from other you know industrial processes but really yeah that's where we are we're just going to we're going to contaminate our water supplies forever the thing that was really bothersome is that one measuring cup of pfoa contaminates 8 billion gallons of water forever forever this is insane
1: yeah okay okay
0: and while we're on PFAS, just to just to let our listeners understand how widespread this chemical is it's not just in it's not just being used by the fracking industry yeah. or the oil and gas industry yeah. but it's in so many of the things that we purchase So here's another study, and this is from CNN, actually. It says, water and stain-resistant products contain toxic chemicals, and here's what to do. Toxic Free Future, an environmental and health advocacy and research group, ran chemical tests to detect PFAS on 60 products in three categories. Outdoor apparel, bedding, tablecloths, and napkins, purchased from 10 major retailers, They detected PFAS in a wide variety of products that included rain jackets, hiking pants, shirts, mattress pads, comforters, tablecloths, and napkins. Thousands of varieties of PFAS are used in many of the products that we purchase, including nonstick cookware, infection-resistant surgical gowns and drapes, mobile phones, semiconductors, commercial aircraft, and low-emissions vehicles. The chemicals are also used to make carpeting, clothing, furniture, and food packaging resistant to stains, water, and grease damage. Once treated, the report says, textiles emit PFAS over the course of their lifetimes, escaping into the air and water in homes and communities. The report did have some good news for consumers, though. They didn't find PFAS in any of the items that were not marketed as stain or water resistance. Consumers could just choose those to be safe. Raincoats, of course, are a different story. To accomplish the goal of water repellency, a few companies are using tighter weaves, PFAS-free membranes between coat layers, and paraffin wax, which is the only coating that has been publicly assessed and found to be safer. The report said product testing also found a number of new PFOS chemicals created by industry to take the place of PFOA and PFOS. Experts say the new versions, which simply replace the eight-carbon chain with four or six-carbon chains, appear to have many of the dangerous health effects as the older chemicals. Thus, experts say consumers and the environment are still at risk. Quote, they went to the shorter-chained carbons, and you study them, and they do just about the same thing. End quote. Microbiologist Linda Birnbaum, the former director of the National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences and the National Toxicology Program, told CNN in a prior interview, quote, some people call it the whack-a-mole problem. Others call it the chemical conveyor belt, Birnbaum said. Why would we think that you can make a very minor change in a molecule you are manufacturing and the body wouldn't react in the same way? There's an increasing number of ways consumers can avoid clothing and other products laced with PFAS, one of the most effective, voting with your pocketbook. The easiest thing a consumer can do is don't buy things that are marketed as stain and water resistant. There are lists of companies which are PFAS free, or at least are in the process of becoming so, experts say. The Environmental Working Group has curated a list of companies who have not intentionally added PFAS to their products. I mean, you have to understand that there are thousands of PFOS chemicals. You have PFOA, yeah. PFOS, PFBA, PFPEA, PFH, PFU, PFNA, okay, okay, okay. PFBA. I mean, it's crazy. We get, we get
1: the point. There's a lot of PFAS. Thousands.
0: So many of these these yeah. stain-resistant chemicals. It's amazing.
1: Jeez Louise. Okay. do you right? even... So the
0: oil and gas company is contaminating our water supply with, with PFOS, which are forever chemicals. And then consumers are buying them. Literally. Innocently, they have no idea that they're buying. You know, because I mean, you buy a tablecloth and napkins, and it says stain and water resistant. You want that, right? Yeah. I mean, you think you want That's that. That's a good thing, sure. You think you want that, so when somebody spills something on the tablecloth, it's not going to stain.
1: Oh boy. Yeah. All right. What else you got?
0: All right. And the last thing is is kind of good news, although not really for the Biden administration. So um, this is uh, from Friends of the Earth uh, and it's you can find it at foe.org. And the title is Court Finds Massive Offshore Oil Lease Sale in Gulf Based on Faulty Legal Analysis. The D.C. District Court invalidated the Department of Interior's decision to offer 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico for oil and gas leasing, marking a pivotal victory in the fight to defend Gulf communities and the planet from the worsening climate crisis. The court held that Interior failed to accurately disclose and consider the greenhouse gas emissions that would result from the lease sale, violating a bedrock environmental law. Earth Justice filed a lawsuit on behalf of Healthy Gulf, Center for Biological Diversity, Sierra Club, and Friends of the Earth on August 31st against Secretary of the Interior Deborah Holland and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management following the notice of lease sale number 257. The lawsuit argued that the 2017 environmental analysis that the Biden administration relied on to hold the sale is fatally flawed. The sale was not only counter to the administration's pledge to reduce carbon emissions by 50 percent to 52 percent by 2030 and meet our climate commitments, but is illegal and based on previously debunked environmental analysis. The D.C. District Court decision holds Interior accountable for grossly underestimating the climate impacts and risks to Gulf communities before deciding to hold the largest oil and gas lease sale in the U.S. history. This ruling ensures our waters and coasts will be protected from additional harmful drilling and eventual spills in the Gulf, where the fossil fuel industry is already sitting on 8 million acres of leases of public waters. A clean energy transition is essential for Gulf communities and our increasingly warming planet. Instead of expanding harmful drilling, we must meet this once-in-a-lifetime moment to protect our public lands and waters and move away from our reliance on fossil fuels. By vacating Interior's decision to hold this illegal lease sale, the court has ensured that no harm will result from it. Whatever Interior decides to do, it must start with a blank slate. And consider the full environmental costs associated with auctioning off our public waters to the fossil fuel industry. We're confident that a full assessment will lead to the undeniable conclusion that holding a lease sale will cause irreparable harm to Gulf communities and the climate.
1: I admit I'm a little confused by this because I was sure that the Biden administration has said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to lease offshore lands for oil drilling. But apparently there was a report that they relied on that said this. They relied
0: on the 2017 environmental analysis to hold this sale. Why were they doing this? Why were they even contemplating doing this?
1: Any report that came out of the Trump administration... Is suspect out of the box, right? I mean, why would you rely you would on think. that study? Okay. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Remember the movie, The Graduate, when the character played by Dustin Hoffman is lying around the house doing nothing, and a neighbor tells him that the future is in plastic. It's one of the great scenes in Hollywood, an oddly prescient statement, because the future of our planet may hinge on plastic, but not in producing or selling it, but getting rid of it and cleaning up the incredible mess it has created in our world. Our guest on this edition of Green Street is Erica Serino, the author of Thicker Than Water, The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis. Erica is a scientist-slash-photographer-slash-writer-slash-activist who has herself sailed through the great northern Pacific garbage patch, and who's here to tell us about her life as a lover of nature growing up in the middle of climate change and how we can solve the plastic crisis. Here's our interview with Erica Serino
0: we're so happy to have you on the show today. You've done such incredibly amazing work for a person so young, but I know that when you were in college at Stony Brook University, that you were actually doing some volunteer work in wildlife rehabilitation. So how has that impacted the work that you're doing today? Right. So
2: first, thanks for having me, Patty and Doug. So excited to be here. Um, when I was in high school, around age 15, I started volunteering at a wildlife rehabilitation hospital. Um, and quickly, it turned into a paying job. It, it paid peanuts. But you know, for someone who loves wildlife, that was something that I really enjoyed doing. Um, and so my work there involved caring for sick, injured, and orphaned wildlife endemic to Long Island, New York, where I was living. And that includes an array of hawks, owls, falcons, songbirds, waterfowl, turtles. Possums, you name it, you know, all the, even tiny little mice, field mice. Um, you could find any creature and bring it to our clinic, and we would do our best to care for these animals in a way that would allow them to uh, make it through whatever they were going through and then be released back into the wild. I found it to be such rewarding work um, from that early age as, as a young person who really cared about nature and wildlife, especially. And I learned so much about conservation uh, in those early years. And when it became a job and I was in college studying for a degree in marine vertebrate biology, which was a degree that maybe would allow me to do future rehabilitation work or maybe work in um, field research of some sort. I started understanding that I was just treating the symptoms of a larger problem. And that larger problem is that humanity is making it really hard for other species and ourselves to be living on this planet as we continue to shape it and change it in ways that don't allow life to thrive. So that kind of, oh, and I'm looking out my window seeing a red-tailed hawk soar by, which is just unbelievable. I have to add that, (laughs) Um, but you know, wildlife is so close to my heart and seeing these creatures suffer. And in so many cases, um, as I've seen over the years, harm because of plastic, you know, whether it's a, a beautiful great horned owl flying into a soccer net and getting entangled to a gull eating, Uh, some kind of bottle cap and choking on it, and then other creatures uh, like turtles ingesting fishing lures and uh, plastic line. There are so many ways plastic can harm wildlife, and they really are
0: the sentinels of this crisis that we have on our hands. That's inspiring, first of all, that you were that you were so involved in nature and in in protecting them from, from human activities, right? Right. And trying to trying to heal them and allowing them to go back to their to their wild uh, environment. But tell us a little bit about what was the transformation in, in school for you and then what drove you to the whole issue of plastics? So I first really
2: recognized this mismatch between, you know, treating the symptoms of a problem and actually changing the systems that drive the problem first in Dr. Heidi Huttner's environmental literature course. And in that course, I learned of all our foundational environmental writers and uh, heroes from Rachel Carson, who spoke out about the widespread um, distribution of poisons all around us. And it's a problem which continues to this day in which plastic falls under the umbrella of to environmental justice heroes like Dr. Robert Bullard, who drew attention to the inequity people of color face in our industrialized polluted landscape. And that's also um, a field related to the plastic crisis. So we see plastic, you know, interrelated in all these environmental issues. And I started to wonder how I could maybe start to prevent these problems before they happen instead of spending the rest of my life uh, treating the symptoms, which as someone who's still a licensed wildlife rehabilitator, clearly I do believe that there is a place for, you know, direct action and, you know, addressing these symptoms too, because pe- people and animals are suffering all over, um, and so we do need that work as well. And I don't want to understate that, but it was really when I started considering this bigger picture view and other ways to communicate these issues um, when I started to think maybe I should take a different tack to conservation and and speak out about the issues. So. That's when I turned to writing and art, which have always been, um, you know, standbys in my life and things that I've turned to to express myself. And so I started pursuing more of a journalistic path from that point on, but still focused on science. Because I I do believe that, you know, fact is is what we need to get through all these hard times, too, because if we can't have the facts, we can't find a way out.
1: Mm.
0: And and so true that is. <laughs> yeah, and, there, you know,
1: there are yeah. no alternative facts here in terms of, you know, climate change and plastic pollution. I mean, it is what it is, and and exactly. and, the, and the statistics are pretty frightening. I guess you decided then the next logical step was to write a book.
2: Yeah. Um, so shortly after graduating in 2015, uh, with my master's in science journalism, also from Stony Brook. I went on to become a freelance uh, photojournalist, and, I, and those journeys took me all over. And I was covering issues, widespread issues related to wildlife, uh, including plastic. But not that was not the only issue that I, that I wrote about. And you know, I, I did return to the plastic story when I got the opportunity through Dr. Carl Safina, who is another professor at Stony Brook University that I met on my journey through, um, and whom I whom I've worked with after that point up until the present day. And He was invited to sail on the ship crossing the great pacific garbage patch and couldn't make it and recommended that i go for the journey um, as this danish crew of sailors and scientists was seeking various people to communicate their research and to communicate the issue to bring attention to it on this boat Um, and so they needed a writer and so (laughs) i was recommended and i i got the unbelievable opportunity to sail aboard also joining us was chris jordan um also someone who, who knows Carl Safina, and he's a an artist and a filmmaker who's brought attention to the plastic issue and issues of mass consumption. So we were two creative people on a boat of scientists and sailors, and it was really an unbelievable experience. And that was really the journey that uh, solidified my interest in the plastic crisis, so to speak, and kind of pushed me to consider writing a book about it because it was clear to me at that point when we when we crossed the garbage patch that the problem was so much bigger than you know litter on a beach or a six-pack ring although those are horrible things in their own ways um it was just much worse than that so that's when i set off
1: what an incredible opportunity that was for you to be there with the scientists to to go through that what tell us what it was like to sail into a garbage patch of plastic
0: Yeah. And and which garbage patch? Was it the one between Hawaii and and California? Right. So this was the
2: Eastern North Pacific Gyre, um, which is one of the most notorious garbage patches and and actually the first to be kind of described in scientific literature and mass media Uh by uh, Captain Charlie Moore, who I had the pleasure of meeting, he runs Algalita, which is a a research foundation based in California. And he's a sailor and he'd been sailing across in a catamaran and figured out there was a huge patch of plastic there. But unfortunately, uh, you know, the word patch can be interpreted many different ways. And media reports kind of seemed to snowball from the 1990s, late 1990s, when he found it to the mid and late 2000s. Um, And it was just kind of described, oh, this is a a floating dump in the middle of the Pacific, and it's it was far from that thing um, as I saw when I when I sailed out there. Um, instead, the problem is much more grave and insidious. Unfortunately, if only it were a dump, we could just scoop it up. Instead, we have plastic particles and objects permeating the oceans from the surface down to the seafloor, and it's just an unbelievable problem. And the particles of plastic could be so small that we can't see them. That's you know what we're dealing with, and it really sheds light on the reality that plastic is never going to biodegrade benignly. It's, it's just going to break up into smaller pieces of plastic that continue to pose a danger to wildlife and, and animals and any living thing. So it was very alarming to go out there and learn all these things uh, with scientists who were dipping in research equipment um, throughout the first 200 meters of the water column. And we even caught a mahi-mahi out there, which is a, a beautiful fish, otherwise known as a dolphin fish. And um, we would eat the fish because out at sea, you don't really have any fresh food. You have um, lots of cans of beans and boxes of rice, et cetera. So every bit of fresh food, even for the vegetarians on board was like, okay, we're going to respect this animal. We're going to eat this animal. However, it became much less appetizing, at least to me, um, when it was found that one of the fish had plastic in its stomach, plastic pellets, like from plastic production. So... For plastic is molded into the items that we use every day. It exists as these uh, hard little pellets. They almost look like little little crystals or little uh, circular drops. I don't know how to describe them. Um, very small things. They've been called nurdles, um, if people have heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. So these pellets, and there have been spills. There have been um, huge releases of these tiny, tiny pellets into waterways into um, onto land. So very concerning to find them in a fish <laughs> of all places. Yeah, yeah.
0: So just for our audience's sakes, the gyres are formed in the oceans because there is a a current, kind of a circular current that kind of keeps everything that kind of floats by or floats into it in place, really. It keeps it in that area. Is that correct? Exactly. I mean, for the most part, gyres, while well, they do shift... Uh, over time and,
2: and shift slightly depending on other currents because the, the oceans are not static. That's this plastic that's in the oceans is not just sitting there. It's being smashed around, um, degraded by light into these small pieces, you know, and carried to the furthest reaches of the earth. I mean, you can find uh, these plastic particles, which are commonly called microplastic or nanoplastic, depending on how small they are, nanoplastic being the smaller size. At the polar regions, and there are very few people and very few uses of plastic there, you know, other than maybe research and in terms of these ocean currents, um, it's very interesting, too, because scientists have to consider that these currents, which might be shifting, uh, may carry higher or lower loads of plastic, depending on kind of where they've been and where they're going. And many beaches are kind of accumulation points of plastic. I visited one such beach on the Big Island of Hawaii, and that beach had a particularly heavy load of plastic because it lay in the path of the gyre. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see that variation.
0: Yeah. So about 20 years ago, I I created a program for the schools. Uh, We do a bunch of environmental programs from kindergarten through seventh grade here. And I created um, a program, among others, called i'll have the plastic fish special please (laughs) so so the kids you know everybody in seventh grade boy they know everything who is this stupid lady coming in there you know what is that all about so it was really just about you know about plastics from cradle to grave and there have actually been some scientific studies showing that there are these microplastics or nanoplastics in the flesh of the fish Mm -hmm. um, that are found in these areas where there is such high plastic concentration and where there's been enough time to break it down into these smaller and smaller particles. And so we knew about that 20 years ago when I created that program, and it's just gotten worse. How much worse has it gotten? How much more, you know, I want to use the word dreadful or, uh, you know, serious has this issue gotten? It's so serious that scientists this week were compelled to publish a
2: study highlighting the fact that we've crossed a fifth planetary boundary, which is the human man-made emissions um, of various chemicals, including plastic. It's under the umbrella of of these novel entities, they call them. And it's a point where uh, a tipping point, kind of, where we are just going to continue causing more harm. um, And even if we address it, we will still have been harmed um, very clearly. So as we know, but you know, the problem is growing drastically worse And every year at this present stage, plastic corporations are churning out, about 350 million metric tons of plastic, um, and only 9% of all plastic ever made has been recycled. So the track record is not good for um, any of this plastic being reused. It will only be added to the 8.5 plus billion metric tons that have been made over time, and possibly most of that that has been discarded in landfills in the natural environment. You know, a small portion been incinerated, um, an even smaller portion in si- recycled. So it's very disheartening um, to know the intentions of the corporations because it is only to churn out more and more. And scientists are calling out saying, hello, we need to stop producing so much. Um, And these scientists indeed called for a cap on the production of these hazardous
0: substances, since clearly we cannot contain them. (laughs) So... Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah well you know here you here you have the um the petrochemical industry or or the fossil fuel industry one in the same um or or tightly you know associated and they are looking at the rapid growth of alternative energy in all fields transportation energy you know heating and blah 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 and they're looking at ways to continue extracting and using these fossil fuels. And one of the major, major areas that they have determined is uh, is going to be profitable is plastics. Totally. Um, and it is driving an increase
2: in construction of refineries um, and processing facilities and also plastic factories, especially in the Ohio River Valley in the U.S. and in the so-called Cancer Alley, which is a horrible name for a place that is just completely saturated with industrial mostly petrochemical and plastic development up and down both banks of the mississippi and this is between um, baton rouge and new orleans Mm. and there you know communities of color have long faced dire environmental justice issues related to the existence of these factories and facilities and it's it's only getting worse and um, it reiterates the fact that we really need to address the petrochemical industry as you know, interrelated, again, like you said, with the plastic industry, because for listeners, plastic is made, conventional plastic is made from gas or oil, increasingly from gas, as is its additives and colorants and different things like that. So a lot of toxic stuff is going into plastic.
1: You're listening to Green Street, the Environmental Health Show with Patty and Doug Wood. And our guest today is author, photographer, and activist, Erica Serino, the author of Thicker Than Water, The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis. It's not just those fence line communities and sacrifice zones that are suffering uh, on the that's at the front end of plastic production. but on the back end of plastic's life cycle comes the tremendous impact that plastic waste is having on economically challenged communities uh, around the world right yeah well um, I,
0: yeah I mean a lot of the recycled stuff you know gets dumped on these yeah, third so countries that's
1: what I want to hear about that
2: yeah right so so when we have recycling put it out to our curbside you know i often speak to communities and they are saying how could plastic be such a problem if i always recycle and all my neighbors recycle and Mm. we're so good about it and i say i know and you people do try so hard but unfortunately much of our recycling is not recycled and we do have to hold corporations and governments accountable because much of what they say that they're going to do with the waste is not done with it and that is not right you know we're told something else and we're told that recycling will help and it does not. So where does it go? So some of it does go to a recycling facility where it is often extremely hard to clean and decontaminate plastics of so many different varieties and so there are various types of plastic. A plastic bag is made of a different chemical mixture than say a hard plastic bottle. There are, you know, different additives as I said and much plastic cannot be recycled very easily. And so in different communities, some of that plastic will just be thrown to a landfill. In other communities, plastic will be diverted and um, incinerated. And in my community, there's an incinerator here that burns um, garbage from communities nearby. So. It could be something like that and then turned into energy, or it could be shipped to a developing, often developing nations. Right now, Turkey is a major uh, importer of garbage. China was a major importer until it implemented um, its national sword policy, which deterred people from uh, sending trash there. And so we see this pattern where the trash is never going away. It's only pushed onto someone else's shoulders. Um, and often these are communities of color, either Black communities, Latinx communities, Indigenous communities, and also uh, lower income rural communities of all shades. And it's it's very alarming to see that it's becoming more common for people to share their stories and say, oh, I live next to a landfill. I live next to an incinerator. And it's, it's because this infrastructure has expanded um, so widely and unfortunately next to our most vulnerable communities. And so these communities really, um, so many of them have been speaking up for so many years um, and recent calls for justice, I think, have really emphasized, you know, we do need to address these longstanding issues if, you know, now, uh, if not not sooner. I mean, this is just becoming um, really, really a grave situation situation for so many people in so many communities.
0: You know, this is all, you know, so, so important for the public to understand uh, that, you know, and and recycling is just not the answer to this. As you have pointed out, it's all about reducing the use of it. We have to just like stop using plastic now And then we'll still be living with the the impact of it for, you know, for decades and decades and decades and maybe even forever. Right. Because plastic doesn't break down. But there are also, you know, environmental health issues and human health issues just from using plastics. And as you said, you know, they add all these other things to it, like coloring and other chemicals for desired attributes for it. Like, you know, so that it doesn't it doesn't break. It's flexible, blah, 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 blah. And there are a lot of chemicals, plasticizing chemicals that are actually harmful to humans if we eat out of them uh, or drink out of those plastic um, things. Right. Um, and also if children mouth them, you know, very young children. I mean, we're talking about like serious chemicals, like endocrine disrupting chemicals, like phthalates and, um, and BPA and, and other things that are put in, even, even um, antimony, some heavy metals and things are found In these plastics that can actually impact the health of humans and wildlife right while you know there's a question in
1: here somewhere the
0: question is in your book what are you recommending that we do go down we need to use zero plastic is that correct turning off the tap is our
2: number one it should be our number one priority but unfortunately because the issue is so multifaceted we do need to address it from so many different angles at once because we have the widespread issue with toxics and the toxics related to plastic and in plastic. Plastic is a great vector for disease actually we're finding out. Um, And actually early reports where people were, you know, scrambling for plastic bags and and states and municipalities were considering, you know, rolling back any kind of environmental regulations to, you know, prevent COVID, but actually plastic holds the COVID virus uh, longer than uh, wood and and cotton cloth. That was what studies had found or paper and cotton cloth, I believe. So uh, it's, it's not really as clean and sanitary as we've been taught it to be. And so we do have to reconsider our uses. So why do we have to use it for everything? Do we need to wrap everything in plastic? If it's good at holding diseases, I don't think so. Why should we do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, really, again, looking at the truths of plastic and all the harms it can cause and then just considering and, you know, also eighty years ago, ninety years ago, people didn't have plastic for everything. Um, uh, most things were kept in paper, um, wood. and I'm not suggesting we go back in time, but I'm also thinking, you know, we clearly we don't need to package everything as we do. So,
1: it's it's interesting. Plastic is used in so many cases because it's quote cheap unquote. But right. in fact but in fact the ultimate cost of plastic is phenomenally large. Have right. do we have good economics to show the cost of, for instance, a plastic fork, which might cost, you know, a, a food establishment two cents, and they look at it and they say, Well, that'll cost me two cents, that's cheap. But the actual cost could be you know 30 cents when you look at the cost of cleaning up right. the pollution that we've created are, are there economists looking at that because i it seems to me that you know as in a lot of cases it's money that talks and until we can show the actual cost of the plastic that seems to be so cheap you know it's going to be a hard thing to tell people don't use this don't use plastic even though it's cheap you know what i'm saying in other right. words right. how Tiling. do we make that argument
2: right so, I'll hit everyone with the big line to begin with. But, um, you know, I heard in so many fence line communities is plastic worth more than human life? Um, because it literally is lives on the line. So, putting that out there first. But in terms of economic systems, I was very intrigued by Kate Rayworth. She's a, an economist who looked at a donut shaped model, economic model, where the rights and the health of humanity and of nature are prioritized. Um, and it is a model that upholds um, all people and not just, you know, the wealthy people that have benefited from plastic production and of our economic system to date and other industries, but really looking at the human costs and, and accounting for that and the decisions that we make. So that was something I did include in my book. Dollars and cents wise, I don't have numbers, but it is so clear again from that, that line about um, plastic being worth more than human life and, and money being worth more than human life. It's just... Um, that's what we have at stake. So it's really, I don't, I don't find it helpful to say, okay, this is worth 30 cents. Um, you know, and that's not a big hit to someone's bottom line. If they're buying, um, forks, plastic forks or biodegradable forks, it's really about, you know, let's come together and realize we all have to think differently here.
1: Um, Okay. But for instance, do we know what it would cost to clean up the gyre that you were sailing through?
2: Well, um, Boyen Slat from the Netherlands and his group, the Ocean Cleanup Project, they've deployed uh, multi-million dollar booms out there. And that's not even making a dent in solving the mm. problem. So it, mm. we cannot clean up this mess. Um, people can try and and that should be you know, applauded. But sending a boom that's itself made out of plastic into the middle of the ocean during a time when we really need to focus on stopping continued plastic production you know investing millions into that where millions could be invested elsewhere is um in many people's not just mine but scientists opinion um sometimes a wasteful use of resources because it's not something that we can just scoop away
1: <laughs> well okay i accept the idea that we need to turn off the faucet and i, I agree with that yeah. but the fact is we've got these gyres out there that are harming wildlife and the cost of that plastic is that it has to include that the cost of removing Enough. that plastic, right? So For
2: sure, for sure. And there are initiatives to hold corporations accountable. These are called extended producer responsibility mm-hmm. schemes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And many groups are pushing for that right now um, and lobbying governments. Maine passed an EPR bill um, and other states have been considering and these would force corporations to financially and logistically make plans for what happens to their waste at the so-called end of life, which is when people are done Mm -hmm. using it. And we are yet to see a very successful model roll out. Um, I've lived in Denmark for a few years. And while there, I saw their versions of EPR, which included bottle deposit schemes and heavy duty recycling, where they were trying to turn products virtually into 100% recycled content from the beginning to the end of its life into the same use it had before. So in this case, meat trays that I had seen. And it is hard because um, the recycling systems are not yet up to that level yet. But I think that the more that people push for it and the more that we try to hold corporations accountable in legislation, strong legislation, there can be gains made here too, because it is forcing these corporations to do something about it. But it's hard to say that we can just offset with money and have corporations pay for cleanup because really it is all
0: about preventing the problem. Yeah, it's going to the source of the problem. I have always been on this whole, I mean, on every single environmental issue that we work on. It's about going to the source and starting there and getting rid of it at the source because there's all these Band-Aids being put on all these problems and spending all this money to, mm-hmm. you know, to try to figure out what to do with it and, you know, making special landfills and I mean, it goes and special filters and scrubbers for smokestacks. And it's like, stop right. it. We don't need right. it. Yeah. I mean, we right. really don't need it. I mean, in my kitchen, I have no plastic. You know, you you use a bowl and you just put a little plate on top of it. You know, if you're putting it in the refrigerator, if there's leftover food, so you put it in a bowl with a plate on it. What's the problem? (laughs) I don't understand. My daughter gave me some, some cloth, some, you know, some cotton cloth things with a little, you know, a little elastic around them to do the same thing. Right. No, if you're saving something in the freezer, I put everything in a, in a wax paper bag, and then put it into like a, maybe even, I hate to say it, but a plastic bag that I have used like 15 times and washed, (laughs) but you know, just to protect, I mean, it's, it's really hard to throw out plastic. Yeah. It's just, it's, I mean, or even hard
1: for for you.
0: Yeah. Because I know that it's not going to be recycled. I know that it's just going, it's going to wind up in a landfill. It's going to be incinerator or it's going to be in our ocean incinerated or go into our oceans. I mean, we actually send these barges out into the ocean and, dump them, filled with I, plastic. I,
1: first of all, I agree we should turn off the tap, but it's not going to happen tomorrow. But uh, I would love to see the estimated costs of cleaning up the plastic pollution that we've created and put that cost on, on manufacturers over the next you know, decade. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. going to cost billions of dollars to clean this up. Ultimately, the people that are going to pay for it are taxpayers, not these corporations. And yet we're continuing to allow them to not only to get away with it, but as you said, Erica, they're building new plastic manufacturing plants all over this country. Right. This this same industry that is that is piling up a bill for uh, whoever inherits this earth from us. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, somebody's going to have to pay for this sooner or later, and it's right. going to take it's going to take a massive effort by you know the U.S. Navy to get out there with all its army Corps of engineers and try to start inventing ways to clean up this mess. It's billions of dollars, and the right. idea that the idea that we're that we're championing new power new plastic plants being built in this country because it provides jobs to people is it, just unbelievably stupid in my view
2: right the cost is so much greater than than what could possibly be gained and yeah i mean patty with your solutions and at home i mean it's so interesting how if we just think about living more simply you know not having to have convenience for everything we can cut so much plastic out of their lives out of our lives and that was something i learned while living on the boat because it was like a very make-do situation and as someone who Has been around people like you. Luckily, in my life, I've been um, inspired by a lot of people who have cut plastic out and do their own compost piles and, you know. I've even met people doing community waste audits um, on Long Island, actually in uh, Brookhaven in North Bellport, and this is a community that's right next to the Brookhaven landfill. And so these communities and, and individuals, people have these ideas, and and it's kind of like an awakening. Like people are realizing, I don't need convenience culture; it is harmful, and we must change our ways. So it's it is heartening to see that people do do can and do change, um, or can unlearn the bad habits that corporations have taught us
0: it's absolutely imperative um i was going to say that i had a a a long conversation with somebody about these white plastic garbage bags i mean it is the it is the ultimate sign or what you call it the Mm. ultimate image Mm. right of what we're going but i mean everybody buys these white plastic bags for their kitchen garbage right everywhere and when you see you know when you see all the garbage put out on the curb on garbage days right? It's just white plastic bags, tons Mm -hmm. of them. Our next door neighbor puts out like 30 bags a week, you know, and there's all these white plastic bags. And I'm like, I've never bought plastic garbage bags in my life because I just use my paper grocery bags that my groceries have come in. And I put that in my, in my bin for my garbage. And then everything else gets composted because we, you know, we eat a ton of vegetables and, you know, that's mostly what we eat vegetables. And so That's it i don't put anything wet and disgusting in my garbage bag right and it's a and it's a paper bag boom done so i i mean i it would never occur to me to spend money Mm -hmm. oh that's one thing but to also to you know to destroy you know our planet with more plastic bags and the leaves with in the plastic bags are just another huge you know problem i mean how many right. times you know do you see these just literally mountains of black plastic bags filled with beautiful compostable leaves yeah. right yeah. that are that are like black gold for somebody's garden or their right. or their you know their flower beds or whatever and they're just dumping them into the landfill covered yeah. in plastic and ex- extra thick plastic right so that those leaves don't go through so extra right. thick plastic so they won't break down for at least a couple thousand years.
2: It's really unbelievable the amount of plastic we use. And for me, the pinnacle was when I was I was in Thailand in an airport and I saw a banana sold wrapped in plastic, mm. <laughs> like one single mm. banana. And I was just like, Oh boy, this one fruit in its own wrapper. And that just that was an image. <laughs> that's that's exactly. That
1: <laughs> that's crazy.
2: Yeah. Oh. So it, oh, it is insane. And, and the more and I and I do you know ask people like look around you and and just look at the things in your sight of vision and see how much of it is made of plastic. It will surprise you. And you know, if you just name them out loud or write them down and you could make a pretty long list that way, it's unbelievable. And so there's so many other ways to make and do things. I'm building a house right now and I'm trying not to use any plastic. Um, I found you know, I can't get away from the building code. So I had to use plastic in the insulation for the wires and the pipes like mm-hmm. uh, plastic mm-hmm. pipes. And
0: it made me mad, but I had to do it um, to, to pass my inspection. But but you do have copper leads coming in for yes. your water supply. Okay, good. Yes. And it's the PVC uh, going out for your waste pipes. Just the waste. Yeah. 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 But they wouldn't
2: let me do anything different than that. But I, <laughs> I tried. But there are other ways and it does sometimes involve um, more thinking. It does not necessarily have to involve more money. And I'm often ask the question you know why are solutions so expensive because people are thinking okay i have to buy a glass straw and i need to have a reusable metal bottle and this and that and those things are great but you can also make do with things all around you you know for years i drank out of an old jam jar that i got for well it's not free but i bought it from the store filled with something some jam and then i emptied it and i used it over and over so there are ways to you know on a budget do low waste without question um, you can
0: you can Mm -hmm. live a much, a much greener life by Mm -hmm. that costs less too. Um, So it's amazing anyway. So we have these huge problems. I, you know, I keep thinking about starting something where, you know, people can come to, to a store and all they can buy is products that have no impact on their health, on the health of our community or the health of our planet, zero impact. We need that. Yeah. We need all of that. Yeah. And, mm. and luckily,
2: you know, I've seen, if, um, you know, in, in growing numbers in different communities, shops that either sell um, unpackaged goods mm-hmm. or they sell things to have you refill and reuse, um, like toiletry shops. And, you know, we do have to consider the whole life cycle. And, and plastic is just one ele- element. Like you said, That you know, we have to think about um, are the products made fairly um, are the people who made them compensated correctly. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's Mm -hmm. a lot of considerations Mm -hmm. and to have a way that um, we as people, I hate using the word consumers. I just don't like the word, but um, as people making decisions about what we buy and what we we need to have or, or want to have, you know, thinking about the cost, the true cost of it.
1: You've been listening to Green Street, the environmental health show with Patty and Doug Wood, and our guest today has been author, photographer, and activist Erica Serino. Her book, Thicker Than Water, The Quest for Solutions to the Plastic Crisis, is available from your local bookstore. This is the point in our show where we read some questions we received from our listeners and give you some helpful information. Last week we heard from a couple in Columbus, Ohio who have a new baby and wanted Patty's suggestions about foods for young babies. Any ideas about that?
0: Well, breast milk is best uh, when we're talking about new babies, but when you do begin to introduce new foods uh, for your baby, you want to make sure that they are as free from contaminants as possible. and. That's not as easy as it sounds. Mm, Uh, You know, today our our food supply uh, is uh, contaminated with lots of things. We're talking about chemicals that are used for conventional farming, pesticides and so on, as well as for uh, raising animal products. And that includes dairy. And we have to be really, really careful about that. And then there are things that, you know, we don't even realize, which is that rice, has some real problems associated with it. And that's problematic for babies because a lot of the first foods, especially cereals that we give our babies are rice.
1: I was gonna mention, rice is a big big thing for babies.
0: It's interesting, the the contaminant in rice is arsenic. Comes from growing rice in old cotton fields. And we do that pretty commonly here in the United States. And so those cotton fields uh, have been sprayed with Pesticides that contained arsenic and then they also use um, poultry litter for or poultry manure for fertilizer Mm -hmm. on rice crops and that poultry fertilizer contains arsenic that is found in uh, in some of the pharmaceuticals or the drugs that they give the animals. And so that's super problematic. And then, then, of course, there's another unique thing about rice plants, and that is that rice plants, as well as ferns, are you know really, really good at uptaking arsenic into the plant. Mm. And so in the UK, for instance, when you take a new baby home from the hospital, it comes with a little you know, recommendation that you do not feed that baby rice products until they're six
1: years old. Real. And that's so how do you find good can you find decent rice?
0: Well you know the best I think I think a lot of the rice supply worldwide is contaminated with arsenic. I think the safest rice uh, in this country is from California, not from the South. Uh, Organic, I would guess. Organic rice from California. But also I think that India, rice that is grown in India and Pakistan have lower rates of of arsenic as well. However, you can reduce the amount of arsenic even in those rices, which is what I would absolutely recommend you purchase if if you're making something for your child. And that you would rinse it thoroughly. When I say thoroughly, I'm talking about rinsing it and letting it sit in the water once, twice, three, four times until the water is no longer cloudy. Mm. And then you actually cook the rice in more water than is called for uh, in the directions on the package. Mm. So that way you're also diluting the amount of arsenic in the rice but you know there are other grains that you can give your baby you can give your baby quinoa you can give your baby buckwheat you can give your baby other grains that are that are not contaminated with arsenic and of course when I say quinoa and buckwheat I'm also saying the organic variety
1: we gave our babies uh, lasagna if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I think, didn't we? I remember. Well,
0: you know, I think it's really interesting when you're talking about babies and food. You know, I was a great believer in introducing everything to our children, as you remember. You know, we started out with things that, you know, were easy to digest. You know, we started out with, you know, sweet potatoes and avocados and, you know, things like that that we mashed up that were easy to do, oatmeal and those kinds of things. Of course, you have to be careful about oatmeal today because oats— contain a lot of residue from these genetically modified oats that are mm-hmm. mostly grown in this country. Mm-hmm. So you have to, have to, have to choose organic products when you are making food for your baby. But making food for a baby is the easiest thing in the world. It can,
1: can it just be the food that we eat it's and just just ground the food up with some exceptions? Absolutely, since we
0: eat since we organic it. food. So then you just put a little bit of it in a in a blender. Or In our case, we use this little the thing called the Happy Baby Food Mill right? You just throw a little bit of whatever we're having for dinner, and then you grind it up into a puree, and you feed your baby exactly what you're eating.
1: They loved it, as I recall.
0: They loved it. Absolutely (sighs) loved it. And our kids ate everything.
1: They still do. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Special thanks to our guest, Erica Serino, and our associate producer, Alan Weiniger. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, be safe, be well. We'll see you next time.